Ruckus Avenue Radio. I'm a doctor, a father, an American, and Indian. I've had conversations about life with people of every walk, and as I frame the South Asian experience, I seek out the stories of people and their purpose. And what they tell me over and over again is, trust me, I know what I'm doing. So it's not every day that you meet someone whose mom is a descendant of Sam Houston, who also happens to be a South Asian American, who also is running for a congressional seat in the heart of Texas. But that's exactly what happened as I met today's guest, Shri Preston Gulkarni. Shri was raised in Houston, Texas, in a middle-class family, and faced the challenge of his immigrant father's passing from leukemia when he was just a teenager. He's spent his subsequent years in public service as a U.S. Senate advisor and as a Foreign Service officer, making meaningful contributions both domestically and abroad. Shri is now the Democratic nominee for a congressional seat in Texas's 22nd district, and I asked him about the importance of this year's election for the South Asian community. Sure. So first of all, I mean, the stakes are high for everyone. Um, you know, this is the most important election of our lifetimes. You know, we've got you know, the pandemic of 1918, the unemployment of the 1930s, and, you know, the, the racial strife of the 1960s all in one year. And I, I can't imagine the stakes being any higher. But for South Asians in particular, I think this is a moment for our community because people assume that we, we don't show up. I mean, even in our own community, they always say that, you know, well, like, we, we won't vote. We don't, uh, we don't bother. Um, and, I, and I was actually told this uh, when we started our campaign in 2018, don't bother with your community because they don't vote. And I said, maybe they don't vote because we don't bother. <laughs> so, you know, we, we ran the first campaign of its kind in the country um, in, and now in 27 different languages. And it's made, made a huge impact here. So not only did we double, double the turnout from our community, but uh, more important than that, I think we're inspiring a new generation of people, yeah. so many young people, the, the, the kid that was me growing up here, they didn't see anybody who looked like us or had our background. And, you know, honestly, a lot of times people would talk to me and they would, you know, treat me like a foreigner. They would ask me, you know, where are you from? Where are you really from? That's a, that's a question that all of us know because we've been asked it a thousand times uh, in our life. Um, or, you know, do, do you, uh, your, your English is great. And I'm like, oh, yeah, so, so is yours. Congratulations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, so, so having that representation really makes a difference, and it matters, especially at the vice president level, um, but all the way down here, um, inspiring all these young people. I think that level of engagement is incredibly important, and you know, we've heard this a lot about having a voting plan. So how can South Asian Americans particularly maximize this, and, and how important is it for, for them to have a, a voting plan? No, it, it's extremely important because part of... Uh, the, the reason that some people vote in higher numbers than others is it's just a habit, right? Older voters are more likely to vote because they've been doing it their whole life. Immigrants are less likely to vote because when they show up, they start their business or their medical practice and they, they, they keep their head down. It's not the first thing they think about. And that's true for any immigrant community. It was true for Irish and Germans in the 1800s. It's true for the Indian community uh, right now. And so uh, we have to get people into that habit. And so a lot of what we've been doing is uh, relational organizing, meaning it's not just about massive calls and texts and door knocking, which we don't do during the pandemic. It's, it's, it's about the networks that we have. So we'll take out lists of Gujaratis and we'll have 
other Gujaratis call them. We'll have takes a, take lists of Malayalis and have Malus call them. Telugus will call Telugus, etc. And and honestly, it's powered by aunties. <laughs> That's what I say because the aunties are the ones who make make the phone calls. But but young people are also getting involved in it too. Even if you don't speak, so say you don't speak Gujarati, but you can say Kencho. It makes a big difference because people it's respond. It connection, right? I mean, having that linguistic background, that um, brigade of aunties and uncles, probably is a, a real helpful. Um, you know, bridge. And, and that probably, you know, crosses so many different um, cultures and languages. Um, for you personally, um, has your South, how's your South Asian background kind of helped inform your, your personal values? And, and this, you know, election in your candidacy, you know, probably has a, a very personal nature. Can you describe that? Absolutely. So, I mean, there's a couple of things that I would say um, that uh, Im- impact me and the way that I'm oriented towards the issues of our time. Um, so for, first of, co- of course, healthcare, even before the pandemic, this was uh, the number one issue that I talked to Republican and Democratic voters about uh, expanded access to healthcare, lowering the cost of healthcare. Obviously, um, health, health is a very important um, value in the South Asian community. You can see the number of doctors, <laughs> the number of frontline healthcare workers. We're now battling the coronavirus every single day, some of whom were not political before, but now they, they've become involved because uh, politics has unfortunately been injected into this and we shouldn't be divided over whether we're fighting a deadly virus. It's not Republican or Democrat. Um, secondly, things like protecting uh, the environment. This, this is something that's, that's really powerful in, in our community and our culture, respect for Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. And so climate change, which dramatically impacts uh, Houston with 500 year flood after 500 year flood. It's something that unites us and that, that value of protecting the earth. And then I would say another one, Ahinsa, uh, the concept of nonviolence. We, we have an epidemic of gun violence in this country. We had a mass shooting in Santa Fe right outside of our district where I was at a funeral for a little girl there. Um, th- these, are, these are values, I think, that uh, from our community, we can actually help to address some of the most pressing issues of our time. And so all of those things about our community and our culture, I think they're important to American culture because American culture isn't just one thing. It's an amalgamation of all of these things. And so to inject that in, I mean, whether it's, whether it's those kind of things or something as simple as yoga, which, as we were saying earlier, yoga and meditation are so needed right now with all the stress we have in the world. In 2020, people need to do it more, not less. It's amazing how our, you know, kind of links back to such a, a terrific and rich culture can resonate so loudly, in fact, yeah. um, for all of today's issues. And, and definitely the connection to all of your, your personal engagement. Um, do these principles also pervade um, not only your current professional journey, but your past professional journey? Meaning, you know, how is your South Asian values and background really sort of inform that journey through both the foreign, um, you know, engagements that you've had and now the domestic uh, candidacy that, and, and political campaign that you run? Well, I, I would say this. Um, in my family in particular, we had a culture of committing to public service. Now, it's not normal for people from the South Asian community to get involved in uh, foreign service or especially to run for office, but it, it, was, it was very strong um, uh, value in our, in our family in particular, that you have to give back to your community, right? And, and that can take many different forms. So around Harvey, for example, there were so many people from the South Asian community who pitched in and they were recognized for that, for helping uh, victims out here. And in my case, I wanted to go around the world and actually preserve democracy and, and promote stability and peace around the world, because I think that that impacts us back in the United States uh, and the entire global society. And I was really proud to do so. But the interesting thing is that uh, for a lot of people, 
they expected Americans to look one way or have a certain name or, uh, you know, a certain background. And, and that's also good to, to, to represent that diversity that is America, because I think that's, that's one of the things that makes America so great. We don't have the greatest landmass in the world. We don't have the largest population in the world. What we have is the most diversity in the world. And we are strong. We are great because of our diversity, not despite that. And it, it, was, it was a moment of pride for me to be able to represent that to the rest of the world. When you were out representing this to the rest of the world, and now you're doing the same thing um, in your district and you know, even at the, the national level, um, have you found a lot of parallels there where you're really sort of the same engagement that you had um, internationally, you're, you're finding that the same questions, the same issues, does that resonate quite a bit with what you're doing now? Sure. So I guess there's two things from my foreign service background that really stand out in terms of applying to what we're dealing with in America in 2020. Uh, one is that um, we, we need to be able to broaden our horizons. We need to be able to think about alternative solutions to things, whether it's uh, alternative solutions to climate change, and you see different examples of how other countries do it, and we live in a global world, whether it's alternative approaches to criminal justice reform, when you see uh, countries that are actually better at rehabilitating people and, and having a criminal justice system that works, uh, whether, whether it's healthcare, um, whether it's immigration, all of these different things, ha having best practices and learning from other examples, I think that's a good thing for the United States. We need to have a, as much diversity of ideas and opinions as possible. But secondly, I specifically um, tried to work in disputed territories and conflict zones. So I, I was in Taiwan and Kirkuk and in, in Russia and uh, Iraq. Um, uh, sorry, Kirkuk, Iraq, where we had, we, we were literally in a war zone. And so sitting down together with people in conflict and bringing them together, that's instructive because right now it feels like uh, we're in conflict in the United States. You know, the people, we're, we have such a tense moment in our society and we need to stitch our society back together. Um, and it's, and it's, it's really not about increasing the anger. If you, if you win an election, so if Democrats win the election in November, but there's just as much anger in our society, then we haven't really won. What we really need to do is find ways to bring more people in, to stitch our, our society and our country back together. And our answer to that comes from Martin Luther King. He, he said, uh, darkness does not drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate does not drive out hate. Only love can do that. And I think that message is so appropriate to 2020 because the real answer to all of this is not to be more angry at people who are on the other side. They, they're our fellow citizens. They're our neighbors. The, the best answer is to be more inclusive. Have a message that draws in more people, regardless of who you voted for before, regardless of whether you agree with me on every single issue. If you have that inclusive message, that's the, that's the antidote to all of this fear and division. And I'm so proud that we, we're campaigning in 27 languages. No, no campaign in American history has done that. We have people of every faith, whether it's Christian, Jewish, uh, Hindu, Sunni, Muslim, Ismaili, Bori, Parsi, Sikh, Jain. I, I am so, so proud of all of our volunteers and all of these communities coming together because I think this is the example. And this, we're, we're the, the most diverse district in the country. We're the largest district in the country by population. So we should set the best example for the country of how we rise to challenges together. We're joined today by uh, Shri Preston Kulkarni, who's running for Congress in the state of Texas. After a quick break, we're going to come back and talk a little bit more about South Asian communities and diversity inclusion. So stay tuned. Um, so we're back again with uh, Shri uh, Kulkarni, and we're, we're thrilled to have him with us. Shri, I wanted to ask you a little bit about 
what you touched upon earlier, which is the sort of polarization of our communities and our society right now. Um, we're bombarded with so many mixed messages and, and we are in this sort of polarized uh, society. And we often find people retreating into more of a tribal mentality on so many different issues. So how do we actually celebrate this notion of diversity and inclusion in our community and use this as a vehicle for patriotic Americans? Um, so uh, I'll tell you, in, in 2016, that this is when I started to see the, the tension in our society boiling over. And the, the response that I had, I, I reached out to somebody across the aisle, actually, on the Republican side, um, who, uh, you know, he, we, we decided we would, we would create a, something a, that was not a debate. It was a meal that we'd have once a week. We called it breaking bread. And the reason is because if you debate something, it doesn't matter how civilly you do it, you're still lining up on, on different sides and trying to score points on the other person, which doesn't really advance what we're trying to do. So we would run it kind of like a marriage counseling exercise where one person would uh, express a concern that they have, and then another person would have to restate their concern, not respond to it, but restate it in different words, which is a much harder exercise than it sounds at first. And usually the first person would say, well, you don't quite get where I'm coming from. And then the second person would have to try it again. And after two or three rounds of this, then the first person would say, ah, now you get it. You see what it's like to be in my shoes, see the world from my eyes, which is very different, difficult to do, especially if you come from different communities and cultures. Once you get to that point, then we would throw it open to uh, the rest of the table and say, how could we address uh, person A's concern without violating person B's values? Um, and you don't always have an answer, but it still, it reframes the, the question and you get to a better spot because what you find is if you, if you take away the labels, right? When I ask you, you know, what, what are you? Are you a Republican or a Democrat or conservative or liberal or centrist? Most people are really asking that question about tribe. They're saying, are you in my tribe or out of my tribe? Should I hate you or should I love you? And what I tell them is I say, if you're a human being, you're in my tribe. Now tell me what your concern is and let's see if we can address it. And the, the values underneath are very similar. They're, they're about family. They're about you know, health for our kids, education for our kids. They're about protecting our parents. They're about our livelihood, about pride in our work and our community and our country. These things are, are, are really universal. And so as much as possible, we try to peel back those labels and figure out where, where is the common ground? What is it that unites us rather than divides us? So, so is the solution to American patriotism just, uh, you know, really steeped in empathy, relationship building and marriage counseling for the most part? <laughs> Absolutely. Empathy should be part of uh, what we teach kids growing up, but we should also teach it to Congress, I think, because in, in, we can set a better example. So I plan to do Breaking Bread in the Capitol with my colleagues across the aisle. I think it is so important to try to put yourself in someone else's shoes because that's how we actually get to solutions to problem, in my opinion. And that's what I've seen in my career as a diplomat, as a foreign service officer overseas in conflict zones, that you don't get there just by blaming somebody else. You get there by opening the space for that dialogue, sitting at the table, finding out where you have common ground. And we, we all have common ground with each other if we look for it. Let's talk about something that's been, of course, a, a really important topic for um, our nation these last several weeks and, and months because it's been magnified, but obviously has been an undertone topic for, for so long. Um, you share your thoughts on your website about police accountability. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that um, we cannot lose another black life because of pol police brutality. Um, why should this be really important, in fact, to the South Asian community? So I think, first of all, we have to know our history in this country. Um, in fact, the truth is, many of us, I know I wouldn't be here 
uh, without the civil rights movement. Um, because the civil rights movement in the 60s uh, directly led to the Immigration and Naturalization Act of 1965, which my father wouldn't be able to immigrate here in 1969 without that. In the, in the 1940s, all of us, it was illegal for anybody who wasn't white to become a U.S. citizen. We had, to, we had to fight to change those laws, to open that space, to become the diverse society that we are today. And even within that, you know, so my, my father, when he got here in 1969, he was on a rotary scholarship. And he had to give speeches across the South at a bathroom, I mean, at a rotary club in, um, in Mississippi, he was in the bathroom and someone came in and shoved him against the wall and told him he was in the wrong restroom. And someone else came in and saw this and they said, wait, that's our guest speaker. And so he, he had to straighten himself up and go out and address this audience after, after this incident. And um, those kind of things, an attack on uh, one uh, minority community, I believe is an attack on all of us. And so making sure that we, we fulfill that social contract, that everybody is treated equally in our society, regardless of your background, it impacts all of us. And on top of that, you know, all of us want safe neighborhoods for our children and to raise our families and the best way to produce that is if police know the communities that they serve and the communities trust the police uh, who are protecting and serving them and i think that's what we're really talking about these dichotomies of us versus them is it is it uh, police officers or the black community that's a false choice that's a, that's a completely false choice what it's about it's about bringing our society together and making sure that um, the, if when these police officers know their community and when we we try to de-escalate these situations we put in place best practices like like body cameras um, like like training on de-escalation and, and making sure that you remove um, the, the people who who do get involved in these incidents again and again and they don't get passed from department to department what that does is it restores that faith, that social contract, that trust that, that these are the people who are protecting and serving us and it makes the community safer as well as the police departments safer. And so that, that should be our goal. It, it should be trying to pull people together across any one of these things that, that is threatening to divide us right now. And, and for the South Asian community in particular, I think we have a tremendous role to play as allies in this because an attack on, on African-Americans in Charleston, an attack on, on Jews in, in, uh, in the synagogue in Pittsburgh, an attack on Latinos in El Paso, that, that's an attack on all of us as a society. And I think we, we need to hold up that value, that equality. E equality is, 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 I think, the watchword this year. Equality, dignity, and respect for everyone, regardless of your race, your faith, your gender, or national origin. That should be a, a foundational principle that we don't negotiate on in the United States. It's almost like a, a foundational principle for place-based um, policing so that, um, you know, police and, and authorities who are really trying to protect our, our peace and security are, are really understanding our communities. But even within our own community, um, that message of, of understanding that um, any kind of attack on, on any uh, member of our community is an attack on all of us. So I think that resonates pretty loudly. And you spent a lot of time abroad, as you mentioned, and and really learning about so many different cultures and um, really finding a way to, in fact, uh, introduce that into your own um, narrative. Um, how do you help, how did these experiences almost help you resolve that challenge of not only highlighting your own identity as a South Asian American, with the importance of sort of integration and harmonizing all these cultures in our society. Yeah, so identity is a very complex thing. You know, I have my own identity as the, as the child of a South Asian immigrant. I also have my own identity having uh, 
two different cultures. My, my mom, uh, her family goes back to General Sam Houston here in Texas. And so when I, when I would see President Obama um, as, as the first African-American president, but also the first mixed uh, race president, when I see Kamala Harris and people talking about how, how strong is her connection to the Indian community and whether she's Indian or whether she's Caribbean or American, and, and it's all of those things. It's all of those things. And, and especially for those of us who grow up here as children of immigrants, we have to negotiate that complex identity. How, how American are we? How Indian are we? Um, and, but I think that's part of what America is because um, as we talked about earlier, there is no one American culture that is amorphous. American culture is so rich because we keep adding layers to it, you know? So we, if you walk around Sugarland, Texas right here, um, we have our barbecue here, but we have our curry here, we have our pho here, uh, we have taquerias here. I mean, there's so much diversity here and, that, and that's a beautiful thing that enriches our, our society. And so valuing that diversity, uh, not as a replacement of American culture, but as additive to American culture and actually as integral to American culture. That, I mean, that, that, that's the thing. Um, we, we don't have to choose between being South Asian and being American because we are both <laughs> and, we, and, we, and we should be. And, and when people, people sometimes tell me, they say like, well, are you reaching out to the uh, American voters or, you know, you should talk to the Americans. I say, we are all Americans. <laughs> it doesn't matter what we look like or even what our accent is <laughs> because we, America is about buying into an idea. And that idea is one of, of uh, bringing people together and an American dream that anyone can share in no matter where you came from across the world and i love that because you're right you're so right that you know additive additive um value from all of our diversity is just you know increases the spirit of that american ideal and identity um we're joined here today by uh shri Ulkarni, who is running for congress in the state of texas after another quick break we're going to come back and talk to him a little bit more about issues that are directly facing him and our south asian community stay tuned ruckus avenue radio we're back with Shri Kulkarni, who's running for uh, Congress in the state of Texas. Shri, um, as many Americans do, you have a personal history of battling cancer um, in your family. Your father struggles um, with cancer you've, you've written about and spoken about before. Um, our South Asian community, like the entire population, um, faces aging in an increasingly difficult healthcare environment, and all the challenges in, in healthcare are are certainly daunting for many. Um, how has your personal experience sort of driven your policy agenda um, on healthcare? Sure. So, I mean, th this was the, the biggest challenge I faced growing up. I was 18 years old and actually on April 1st, um, April Fool's cruel joke, my mom calls me. I was at University of Texas at Austin and says, yeah, you need to come home because my dad had gotten acute myositic leukemia. So I ended up having to drop out of school at that point to come home and take care of him. I um, helped do his IVs and his physical therapy at home as he went through a bone marrow transplant. I took him back and forth to MD Anderson uh, and I watched my father wither away uh, over the course of over a year until unfortunately he passed away. And I was 19 years old. My family was on the point of bankruptcy. Uh, my mom had three other kids besides me to raise, and we were taking donations just to stay afloat. Mm -hmm. So I had to work my way through school and help raise my younger siblings. Um, but what it showed me is that we, we definitely have a broken healthcare system because even today, the number one cause of bankruptcy is healthcare costs. And that, that shouldn't be the case in a country as wealthy and as developed as the United States. So, uh, you know, there's two basic things that we need to do. We need to bring down... 
costs for healthcare, especially prescription drug prices. We need to be able to negotiate them so people don't have to uh, fly to India to get drugs cheaper and bring them back to the United States. That's a crazy situation to be in. And we need to make sure we expand access. I mean, there's, there's no uh, justifiable reason why different states are playing games with people's health and their lives. And some people expand Medicaid access and some people don't. Um, in our district, that disproportionately affects the Hispanic community in particular. And there shouldn't be a reason why certain communities have better access to health care uh, than, than others. And so uh, I, I think what, what it really is, it's about investing in the health of our entire society. And if you, if you had a company with uh, a sick workforce, for example, that wouldn't be a, a, a healthy company. You wouldn't have a productive workforce. And we need to think about it the same way. Make sure that we have a healthy society so that we can all prosper going forward. If elected, you would possibly be the first Hindu member of Congress from the state of Texas. Um, what does that mean for you? So it, it means a lot for me, especially because my father passed away 22 years ago. And I think he, he would be proud in particular because of representation. I mean, representation matters in a diverse society like ours. If you don't see anyone who looks like you, or if you don't think there's a possibility of your child growing up to be whatever they want to be in this country, then, then that impacts you. So the first of anything is something we should celebrate. The first woman, first African-American, first person of color, the, the first Hindu, the first Muslim, the first Jew of anything. And to, to be honest, um, I will be the first Asian American ever elected to U.S. Congress from the entire state of Texas, which one of my colleagues, he's a state representative here, he said, that's actually not something to be proud of. That's something to be ashamed of. <laughs> it took until 2020 for us to do that. But part of that is that Asian Americans and Hindu Americans, Muslim Americans, we all need to participate fully in our democracy. We, we need to make sure that our, our kids and our communities know that it's it's not just about showing up here. It's also about uh, taking advantage of, of those rights and those privileges that we have because in, in a democracy, if you don't exercise your rights, you may lose them. And, and we're seeing that in dramatic fashion this year, some of those rights under threat. Um, last year, uh, they tried to take 100,000 people off the voting rolls here yeah. in Texas. Um, and the reason was because they weren't citizens 20 years ago. Yeah. My cousin is the same age as me. She, she came here when she was two years old, but she wasn't a citizen 20 years ago. That doesn't mean that she's not allowed to vote today, even though she's a citizen. So like th those are the kind of things that, that we need to guard against. And the way we do that is by getting more engaged, by pulling more people in and celebrating those things. Every time we have a first, every time we break some kind of ceiling, that is something to be proud of as Americans, because that means we're getting closer to perfecting that democracy. You know, one thing that I wanted to really um, touch upon and you know, trust um, these days now, it's magnified so much, but it's so important in our society and, and being able to have a thriving democracy almost really sort of the foundation of that is, is trust. Um, in the quest to represent your district, represent the diversity of the people that you'll serve, what makes you entrustable to lead as an elected official? Well, I think it starts with listening and it's the same whether you're in medicine or you're in politics, you have to listen first. Um, and so uh, one thing, for example, that we committed to doing a long time ago from the beginning of the campaign, uh, we haven't had town halls here. And it's very difficult to communicate with over 900,000 people. We have 935,000 people in our district. Oh. But what, what you can't, and you can't answer every email or every phone call that comes from a constituent practically, but what you can do is give your constituents that opportunity to see you face to face. So I committed not to one town hall every year, which we don't even have now, or one town hall every three months, we can committed to a town hall every single month 
mm. so that our constituents could see us uh, face to face and that I can listen to their concerns. And I don't, I don't promise to agree with all of the solutions. That's impossible, right? Um, the, but I do promise to uh, listen to everyone's concerns and try to address them the, the best way we can uh, to achieve a positive result for everybody in the community. And I can tell you this, this works across diverse communities. We show up at, at, at mandars and masjids and churches, you know, and Chinese community centers and Vietnamese and, and Latino and African-American churches and, and uh, you know, um, white churches and all, all different communities here um, get a chance to see their representative. But beyond that, um, it, it works across political divides too. So I, I had somebody um, call me, um, this was uh, back in 2018, and he said, I want to pass the phone over to somebody. And the guy said, I'm a lifelong Republican, but I'm going to vote for you and I'm going to donate to you today. And I said, why is that? He said, you may not remember, but I met you face to face a couple months ago at the Scarecrow Festival in a very conservative area of our district. Yeah. And I was surprised because you told me you were a Democrat and I talked to you and, and I said, look, I told you two minutes ago, I'm a Republican. Why are you still talking to me? Mm. And your answer was, because even if you don't vote for me, I'm going to represent you in Washington. So I have to know what your concerns are. And he said, I was so impressed by that answer. That's why I've decided today that I'm going to vote for you and I'm going to donate to your campaign. And I think that's the attitude that, uh, that we need to take to representative democracy. It's not about making people agree on everything. It's about finding that common ground, listening to people's concerns. And when you advocate for them, communicating back through the community what you're doing. Because when people feel like they're disconnected from their government, they lose faith in institutions. But the truth is, in a democracy, the government isn't something separate from us. The government is us. <laughs> and we need to make sure that every community feels like the government is them. So true. Tree, it's been a pleasure to, to connect and, and meet you and get to know about you a little bit more. I hope you'll come back and join us real soon. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much. And if uh, any of your uh, listeners or any of your audience want to know more about our campaign, you can go to our website at www.shri2020sri2020.com. Learn about our campaign. Hopefully see the, the now this video, what it looks like to be campaigning in 27 languages, because uh, I think it, it really gets people excited, especially in a year like this. So thank you again. Hi, this is Abhay Dandekar, and you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. Your vibe attracts your tribe, and that pretty much perfectly describes Neela Sethi, who's a native Southern Californian and a proud Indian American. But she's probably better known to many as Dr. Neela, as she's not only a practicing pediatrician, but she also co-founded and runs Janu, a successful fashion business that makes contemporary medical clothing. I had the privilege of working with Neela when I lived in Southern California, and I caught up with her recently to talk about blending styles, her take on the Indian American experience, and entrepreneurship, and her sense of optimism, something we all desperately need in 2020. You know, um, you've spent nearly all of your life um, in Southern California as an Indian American. I guess that goes hand in hand, um, you know, being in California and also being an Indian American. How has your style uniquely blended those two kind of cultures together, if you will? You know, I think I've been very blessed because I was born with fairly modern Indian American parents. You know, they 
given that they were kind of first generation, they, you know, I have two older sisters and, you know, sadly for them, I think they kind of did all the strict, you know, very, very kind of um, enforcing rules for them. And then when my brother and I came around, you know, and this was fast forward a decade later, they kind of let things go a little bit and, you know, let us kind of explore our fashion sense, which is obviously super prominent in Southern California. They, they let us kind of, you know, wear shorter shorts and, you know, go out with friends and, you know, they didn't tell us that we couldn't be in the sun and so we were at the beach and so I think it was kind of a unique experience being Indian and also being in LA because it sort of morphed this idea of being proud of who we were and proud of our skin and proud of our culture but also embracing this sort of cooler LA sort of hipper vibe um, maybe a little faster paced and maybe you know more fashion forward than I would think um, than I would have would see like with other Indian families across the country. Well, so you left the heavy lifting to all of us older kids. Out <laughs> you know, that has come up quite a bit, um, especially in the last few years. And I keep saying, I'm so sorry, but there's nothing you can do about birth order. It just is what it is. I think we kind of beat mom and dad down by the time they got to us. They were like, whatever, do what you want to eat us, whatever. I mean, they were still super strict compared, like, let's be real. They were super strict compared to any like good old American family, but compared to my sisters where it's like no prom, no formal, no boy, like no friends that were boys. They were a little bit more progressive with us and let us do the dances and have friends that were guys. I mean, they didn't let us have boyfriends, but that's another story. Right. Let's not, let's not get crazy. <laughs> totally. I don't think I want to have my, I'm, I feel the same with my daughter 20 years later. So there you go. And I, th I mean, part of that's universal, but I think it's so unique in some ways to be growing up, um, you know, in Southern California and having that aspect of your style. And then, of course, you know, the, the obvious part of being, um, you know, a child of immigrants um, in this sort of unique Indian American um, culture. Um, with that kind of backdrop, how um, has your sort of Indian American background really informed more your personal values? How's that really been able to instruct and inform who you are in that way? You know, I think something that's so, so wonderful and amazing about Indian culture is family, 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 family. And, you know, that's something that's just ingrained with you and ingrained in you from, from birth. And just that uniqueness to the closeness we have to our siblings and the closeness we have to our to our parents and to our extended family. And, you know, I talk to my Indian friends and they're like, oh yeah, I talk to mom and dad every day and that's normal. And I talk to, you know, some of my American friends and they're like, that's not that normal. Um, we get together all the time. We celebrate holidays together. Um, and we really do have that kind of big fat Indian sort of, you know, wedding feel. Um, and I think that is very unique to our cultures and other cultures, but that's something that's been, I think, uniquely ingrained in me. Um, the idea that family's first and that you, you, you sacrifice for your family. And even if it doesn't, you know, align with your personal needs every single time, that's okay. You have to think of the greater good and sort of sacrifice for, for something bigger than yourself. And I think that's something really beautiful and amazing that I am teaching my kids. And, and you know, I mean, um, we probably all have the luxury of having those close-knit ties, especially those who, who have families. And, you know, to some degree, that's probably not necessarily uniquely Indian. And yet, for those who are experiencing it, it's totally um, unique in that way. Have you found that, you know, that particular aspect of, of family and the close-knit relationships that you have, how is that actually now 
informed you or even instructed you in the same way in your professional experiences? I mean, has that, has that carried over, you found, into what you do uh, for your profession? Absolutely. You know, I mean, I'm still best friends with my very best friend from med school, who you know very well. Um, and, you know, I feel that she always jokes with me that, you know, she's just part of the Brown family, too. And, you know, I think that loyalty and that consistency and that ability to, to like I said, sort of think of others before yourself makes you a person that is able to give before you receive and to think about the idea of karma and to think about the fact that you're giving and you may not get immediate gratitude or immediate effects. And that's not what it's about. It's this whole circle of life and the idea of doing good. And I think it fosters these really amazing relationships, not only with friends, but also with patients. Because again, you're not looking to get the quick fix. You're not looking to just do a surgery and then sayonara. You're looking to build relationships with people where they trust you so that when they're having troubled times later in life, they come to you. And I think that's something that has just been sort of taught to me very early on that you give and you don't worry about receiving right away because the universe will provide. And I honestly, in my heart, believe that's true. And that's the base of my, my religion and my, the way I was taught. The idea of karma was something that was in my blood from birth. So, and, and, you know, you're a practicing pediatrician. So, you know, by profession, I, I wonder if that aligns so closely with, you know, what you do on an everyday basis. And um, is it easier because you're a pediatrician in that way? I think so. I mean, I think that I think that it's very it's it's easy to see what's going wrong. And it's easy to step back and say everything's terrible. I mean, especially in the climate we're in, especially in 2020, it's very hard to step back and see the beauty and the joy of what we do. But I think if you can just stop and kind of smell the roses and say, okay, these are this is the beauty of of what I'm doing today. And, you know, every day that I walk into the hospital and I see a newborn, I'm like, this is a new baby. This is a new mm -hmm. person in this, this world. And so as much as people are like, oh, all this terrible stuff's happening, I'm holding a newborn thinking, actually, all this great stuff is happening too. And it's just that idea of that circle of life and this wheel that we call, you know, karma or just the whole universe. And um, if you can kind of step back and just see that and enjoy the ride, the highs and the lows, you know, it's not always highs, there's lows too, but if you can ride those lows, they'll eventually lead to highs. And um, I think that is true in pediatrics for sure. As you know, to crazy clinic days, everyone seems totally unappreciative. You're rushed, you feel flustered, you feel like you can't please anyone. And then pair that with a day or a week or even a month where everybody's thankful and you're getting cards and someone's telling you that you made a difference in their life and you think, okay, that's why I do what I do. And that's why I'm here. You're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhay Dharndikar. After a quick break, we'll come back with more from Dr. Neela. Stay tuned. <laughs> Ruckus Avenue Radio. Welcome back. We're joined today by Dr. Neela, and um, I'm thrilled to have you as a guest. We, we talked earlier about sort of your style and your journey and blending so many different um, cultures as a Californian, as an Indian American. Um, let's talk now a little bit more about your journey as an entrepreneur. And 
you know, what that actually seems like, especially trying to strike a balance between an Indian American theme and fashion. Um, how did Janu come together? How has that sort of been transformative for you? So, you know, I started, I've always been a fashionista. I, I got that from my mother. She, you know, came from here. She came here from India in the 70s. Um, you know, with full Indian clothes and, you know, and never been exposed to American culture, you know, came in, landed, and it was Studio 54, the 1970s, you know, within a few weeks, she was rocking platforms and fur vests and, you know, lashes and cat eye and, you know, and then seamlessly blending that with, you know, a, a beautiful sari or traditional, you know, a traditional, um, you know, anything you can think of suit, you know, so um, I definitely got that from her. It's in my blood. It's something that I've always been passionate about. When I started my third year in medical school, and as you know, you have to wear scrubs, they handed me these scrubs from a vending machine. They were unisex. I was like, uh-uh, I'm not wearing those. And they were like, you have to. And I said, well, can I make my own? And they said, yeah, but you just have to wear scrubs. Well, lo and behold, my best friend from high school, going back to friendships that you keep, um, was a clothing designer and a seamstress. And so she made me scrubs and she monogrammed them. And so that's what I wore. And, you know, sure enough, everybody started with the, where'd you get those? And where'd you get those? Because we made the scrubs skinny and we made the, 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 we made the tees fitted. And, you know, it was the sex, the years of sex in the city. And I thought I was Carrie Bradshaw. And so I just, you know, kind of created scrubs that sort of reminded me of her. And so that was sort of the start of this process of, why isn't that why is it that women can't feel empowered in medicine and why is it that we have to hide our bodies and you know not feel comfortable and not own that we can be powerful and beautiful but also very smart and you know command the respect of a room and i and i felt sort of um i felt like those scrubs kind of took that away from me um fast forward a couple of years my brother who is always you know speaking of indians you know definitely a sidekick of mine we're two years apart less than two years apart Mm. Uh, we were together all the time growing up, same high school, same college. We went to the same college. We had all the same group of friends. Um, we, when I was in med school, he was in college. So he, all our friends became one big group. Um, and he had just finished getting his MBA and, you know, he was in private equity for a long time and really didn't like it and said, what can I do to help? I want to do it something. And I said, let's, let's take this, let's take this show on the road. Um, so we decided to launch a business. Um, it was women's only then it was fashion Forbes scrubs with his, his dream to, to eventually launch to men's. Um, we named it Janu because uh, we loved this, the song Janu Medi John, you know, that old school meet dub song. We were huge in meet the fans and still are in our family. My dad used to call us and my mom used to call us for Janus. She still calls us for Janus. And we thought, why not give, make a strong Indian company with a strong Indian background and, you know, rock, rock it and just sort of disrupt this world of, cookie cutter scrubs. Um, and, you know, people said everything you can imagine. There's too many letters and that everyone's going to call it Janu and it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't resonate with the audience. And we were like, we don't care. This is what means something to us. And so we started in my kitchen um, and it's the rest is history. I mean, it's been something that I has taken my breath away to watch and the way that we have, you know, moved to men's and moved to plus size. And now during COVID, um, you know, donated a million masks to those in need. The spark of that has to have a little bit of, of confidence. And, you know, was it important in some way to really sort of fuel that confidence, especially knowing that this was a family business? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think when, 
you know, it's yin and yang, right? When you have a little brother and when he goes low, I go high. And when he goes high, I go low. And, you yeah. know, it's, it, he, I've been able to pull him out of the trenches when he's like, we can't afford it. And I'm like, we can't afford it. And, and I'm, and he's pulled me out when I say I can't do it and it's too much and I'm missing out on my kid's life. And he's saying, no, you're not, you're a great mom. You got this. Um, let's just get to the finish line a few more days and everything will be okay. So uh, if it was anybody but him, I don't. I don't know if the the company would have been as successful. He's the heart and soul of the company. He's the CEO of the company. I know for a fact that a lot of the drive that he has is because it was my idea, and he's sort of being a good brother and making my dreams come true. And he always says that he is happy to have made my dreams come true. And yeah, there's something really amazing about that brother sister team that I think you know, goes back to those good old morals and values, right? That we knew from the start that we would never let anything break our relationship because our bond was just too strong and our culture and our religion taught us that families first. And, and you know, that that's um, in, incredibly empowering, right? To have that support, have that um, togetherness of the family, really go through it with sort of a partner um, who's so close to you. Um, even with that, in 2020, as amazing of a run as it bit as it's been for you in business um being a entrepreneur and a woman of color um is it still challenging to be a woman of color um in business and run a business in 2020 and and if so how so i mean the short answer is yes and the long answer is yes you know and it's as much as we've progressed i mean i think that there's still so much room for um for women of color and for all colors and yeah. all religions and all races. And, you know, imagine a world where we let our guard down and, you know, women out there could um, show what they're made of and mm. feel judged. You know, it's, it's difficult to be a working mom. And, you know, I get the Indian auntie saying, Oh, you don't spend enough time with your kids. And I'm like, because I have a nanny, you know, and I have a nanny that picks up my kids you know, and then I have the flip side of the, you know, hardcore entrepreneurs that are like, you're not doing enough and your company net worth could be more if you gave more. And I'm, and, and then it's like, then I have the strong Indian woman in me that's like, no, 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 I will be there for every ballet recital and for every theater performance for every basketball game. So I think um, there's so much room for improvement. That being said, you know, because I am, you know, Chuck always says, my husband, I'm, I'm the girl with the happy heart. I think we have come a long way. And just even in the, you know, years that we've started this company to now, I never thought that I would see the Mindy Kalings and, you know, the Jay Shetties and, um, you know, the, the Lily Sings. And I just, these these young, these young kind of Indian faces on, on, you know, mainstream media literally light a fire within me and inspire me to do more and to really encourage the young Indian youth to say, okay, guess what? When we grew up, we didn't see that. We never thought there'd be a day that Madonna would be rocking henna and that people thought Bollywood was cool. We hid and we, 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 we weren't allowed to feel proud because it wasn't mainstream. And so now I feel like we've done this hard work for you and we've created this platform that sort of normalized Indian Americans. So now run with it, show them what we got, use that fuel and that fire that all those values and morals and everything that your parents have taught you and your aunts and uncles and your aunties and your uncles and everybody in your community. And let's, let's do this. Let's change the world. Um, because 
honestly, and of course I'm biased, but if anyone can get things done, you know, it's a strong Indian, Indian woman or Indian man, but really I'm biased to the strong Indian woman, of course. Does that motivation then really solve the ability to move beyond the sort of um, lower points of running a business and trying to um, manage and and tackle so many challenges with wearing so many hats at the same time and the anxieties that go with it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think what I'm learning as I grow older and I'm 43 this year. And so the 23 me versus the 43 me is very different, right? I'm, I'm evolved now. I'm not as much of a people pleaser. I know who's in my corner, right? I, I know my people and I, I don't, I can, I can finally come to a place of like, if you don't like me, well, that's just sad for you versus the old me would have been like, well, why doesn't she like me? Or why doesn't he like me? Now I have the confidence to say, wow, you're really missing out on a, on a great person and a great friend. Um, and I think, you know, my cup is full in many different directions. My cup is full with friendships. My cup is full with my family. My cup is full with the kids in chalk. And so I'm not yearning for the acceptance that I did before. Um, now I'm really looking to kind of solidify the relationships that I have and even grow stronger with those relationships. So, um, so maybe the lows that I had before, I don't really allow. Um, they're different lows now. You know, the lows now are COVID and, uh, you know, all the stuff that we're going through in 2020 and, you know, BLM and everything that weighs heavy on my heart that I want to make better. And, you know, our entire, our entire, you know, state on fire. Those are the things that I think about. You know, I have a very global view of thinking, but um, it still goes back to my my the way my parents raised me and you know i still i mean to this day have my own pendant on this thing you know it's it's not left my side i have my my evil eye that that you know that sticks with me right Uh, no matter you know how how high end i get like it doesn't matter i still have those things with me and um you know sometimes i do have to just step back and say my ombuboswa like just like every other person you know and sometimes that's mom and dad's advice to me is oh did you do your ombuboswa and i just feel seven years old when they say that you're listening to Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing with Abhayadharndekar. After a quick break, we'll come back with more from Dr. Neela. Stay tuned. Ruckus Avenue Radio. Okay, everyone, welcome back um, to this episode of Trust Me, I Know What I'm Doing. I'm joined by my dear friend, Dr. Neela, and... I want to uh, talk a little bit about kind of the future and um, what we're dealing with now. And, you know, what parts of your future kind of do you see as uniquely being Indian? Um, And and that's kind of a a broad, open-ended question. But, you know, how do you kind of balance the uniqueness of your culture with the notion of being sort of a business leader in a a global community? And um, is there sort of a, a challenge of, maintaining your identity, being uniquely Indian, but also uh, playing to a, a very, very large and diverse market? You know, I think in the climate of everything that we're going through in our country, it's it's actually lit, lit this sort of even stronger like Indian fire within me, where I want to uh, be a role model and I want to own my skin color and my religion and my, my history instead of blending. You know, and I think even 10 years ago, it was like, you had to be a certain way if you needed to be successful. You had to have a certain look. You had to have a certain, you know, you had to be cookie cutter in, certain, in a certain way. And, you know, I, 
I don't believe that's true, especially now. Um, and what I want to do is be a role model for change mm. and for diversity and for acceptance and of all different races and religions and people of color and yes. women of color. Um, so I do think that we face challenges for sure. I think that, you know, our hearts are all heavy in the climate that we're in, but I choose to view what we're going through as a jumpstart to something bigger and better and fresher. And I hope that the world will start to embrace smaller businesses like my own and, um, just be open-minded to what other people from different places have to offer and not just their points of view and their product, but just everything about them, what they bring to the table because they may learn something that they hadn't learned before. Um, here's a question I've always wanted to ask and another fellow, you know, pediatrician, you know, when we went to the doctor, their word was always taken as serious and professional and it's to be followed. And there's really no two ways about it. It's not to be questioned. Um, you know, as a pediatrician, you may have parents who don't agree with you. You may have, um, you know, even as someone living in 2020, you may have friends who don't agree with you and um, they may question your decisions or, or the way that you do things. Um, you know, given this backdrop of, of really sort of thinking about trust and how we go about um, our lives and given the backgrounds that we've had, how do, you, how do you resolve that? How do you actually resolve this in the office when we're trying to integrate so many different viewpoints and vantage points, and yet we really are being questioned a lot with who we are and, and do people actually exude that trust in their physician and their leaders and their entrepreneurs? How do you resolve that kind of tension? Um, truth. You just stick to the truth. You don't vary it. You don't, you don't cook. You don't, you don't, you don't put it and present it in a way that you think that they want to hear. You give them the truth and your opinion and you have faith in yourself. If you try to change you or change your views person to person or patient to patient or business to business, you're going to get lost in the mix. And guess what? People can figure out if you are speaking your truth and living your truth. It's an everything. It's like your vibe attracts your tribe. So whatever vibes you put out, people are going to either accept it or not. And it's not for you to decide what their reaction is going to be. It's for you to speak your truth, to stay in your lane, and to come from a, 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 a real place. And people can either choose or not choose to not choose to accept that. So I had a mentor, um, she's since retired, but she's a dear friend of mine. And the story I always tell is when she came into a room, she had the room open. It was one of my first days of private practice. And she says, she says to the patient, I don't know. It was a rash. And she said, I don't even know what this rash is. And I'm sitting there thinking, Oh my gosh, she said, she doesn't know something. I mean, that seems counterintuitive. You shouldn't do that. And she goes, but I know exactly someone that will, and I'm going to get you there. And when she came out, I said, oh my gosh, how did you say that you didn't know something? And I said, you're so real and, and raw. And she said, oh, honey, if you're not real and you're not raw, people are going to see right through you. Hmm. And to this day, that is what resonates. And when I tell patients, hey, I'm worried. I'm really worried today. I don't know. And I'll say, I don't know what's worrying me. This situation's making me uncomfortable. I don't like that your kid's not talking and hand flapping. If he was just hand flapping and not talking, I wouldn't worry. I just speak the truth or I'll say, you know what? I get, I know you're worried, but I'm not worried right now. I'm not worried. When I worry, I'll tell you. And I always tell them, I will never lie to you. Yeah. If I'm worried about when I'm sending you to a scan, 
if I say I'm worried you need to go today or ah, it can wait for a couple of weeks. And that is what, that's what helps me, you know, and there are people that try and get in with me about vaccines or, or even with, you know, COVID. And I say, this is what I believe. This is what I feel is true. I am not by any means a expert in the field, but this right. is what I feel. And it's up to you to decide whether you want to take that or leave that. And it goes back to the thing we were talking about with friendships or mm. relationships. If they don't want you as a patient or as a doctor, or they don't want you as a friend, then that's their loss because you have something to give to the world. And if they don't want that, or they're not willing to receive that, that's not on you. That's on them. You know, you're someone who um, is an optimist. You have such a vibrancy about, um, you know, your um, day-to-day um, activities and just, you know, general sort of energy of who you are. It's so infectious. As an Indian American and in a year like this that we've been having and, you know, in today's sort of times um, that have been just so strange, what are you optimistic about? What are you optimistic about for yourself and, and for the South Asian American community? Um, I'm super optimistic for change. I feel in my bones, Abai, that this younger generation is going to take the world by storm. I feel it. I see it. The things that we argue about in our generation, you know, climate change or sexual identity or gender biases or BLM, these are not issues that they're feeling. They are literally accepting the world for what it is and thinking about how they can make it better. And I feel that we are in quicksand where we're just fighting the same issues and not making change. And they're thinking about progressing, progressing and, and movements and you and I can see it and I can feel this momentum building. And I think, you know, maybe we didn't do a perfect job and granted we still have years to come, but maybe we didn't do a perfect job, but this next generation between social media and just the connectiveness they have and the global sort of thinking that they have and their ability to see other people's point of view. I never saw that growing up. I never felt like that was the case. And it gives me faith that they're going to embrace climate change and help us decrease our carbon emissions. And they're going to help with, all people of races and religions and sexual identities and that they're going to take the world to the next level and that everything won't be so far apart, right? Like India won't feel how far it felt from us. Our our relatives felt like, oh my gosh, we were talking on a phone and we couldn't even hear them. And we had to call them in the middle of the night and they had to call us. Now it's like they're chatting with their Indian cousins on WhatsApp. They're FaceTiming them. Everything is just so connected Mm -hmm. And I, I, I feel in my heart that they're going to make a change in a way that we never could, that we never even understood. And I think it's going to happen at a younger and a younger level. I see it with my younger cousins. I see it with my nephews and my niece, the way they're on social media. You know, I don't love social media for many things, but there are many things I love about social media. And I see the way that they are able to express themselves and own it and want change and how they kind of come together as a community. You know, we lived in a bubble. We lived in our city or our high school, you know, and they don't, you know, if they are climate change activists, they have a whole world of people that they're connected to. Right. So that's my hope and that that's my dream. And that is what 
keeps me going is thinking, I know times are tough and I know that we don't get along and agree on every issue, but maybe there's one little bit of one little small generation of people in my city and my little community that I've helped to make them believe in themselves and to give them the confidence and to put a little spring in their step or to give them a perspective that they never thought before and plant a seed to have them come together and make a change. And maybe I'll feel like I was part of that. And that's all I can hope and pray for every day. That's what keeps me going. I think the young um, people of the world are, are lucky to have you in their lives as a mentor, as a thought leader, as an entrepreneur. And we're so grateful that you were a guest today uh, with us on, on the program. Dr. Neela, thank you so much. Hi, this is Abhay Dandekar. Listen to Ruckus Avenue Radio at dashradio.com and download the Dash Radio app for complete access 24 hours a day, seven days a week to our station. Hi, this is Anita Lerge. Check out ruckusavenueradio.com for more information and for the latest on station programming and more.